Now give the Texarkana and back in 28 hours. That's no problem. It ain't never been done before, hot shit. Watch your language, little lady. The problem is that Coors beer, you take that east of Texas, and that's, uh, that's bootlegging. You know, I believe you're just a little bit scared. That's great psychology. Why don't you just say something bad about my mother? Two friends have to transport a truckload of beer from Texas to Georgia in 28 hours with the law chasing them every step of the way. Listen as we discuss dentists named Dr. Teeth, song lyrics that are a hat and a hat, and the fastest hunk of junk on Long Island. We also share our thoughts on Back to the Future, the musical, before finding out if 1977's Smokey and the Bandit stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Smokey and the Bandit edition of the Test of Time. <laughs> I'm James Brief, and joining me is my partner in this uh, truck and haul, Alan <laughs> Noah. How are you doing, Al? I'm good, thank you. What would be our CB handles? Um, I think it would definitely be uh, Captain and uh, Lil Chief. Okay. You're a little chief? No, I'd be captain. And you'll be, you know, you'll be, hey, little chief, come on. Well, in the movie, Bandit's partner is Snowman, and your nickname used to be Snowball. So that could be your your CB handle. No, that's not true at all. My nickname was Scooter. No, actually, that's not true, because no one ever called you that, ever. Yes, someone once did. (laughs) If you called yourself that, it doesn't count. All right, all right. But this movie, uh, Smokey and the Bandit, that we're going to be reviewing today, it has a lot of big stars from yesteryear. The late Burt Reynolds, the late uh, Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason, you know, uh, you and I must uh, know him from two things in our lives. Uh, One is the Honeymooners, of course. I never watched the Honeymooners. Right, but you knew of him from the Honeymooners. Yes. But the other thing that Jackie Gleason was always a reference to us in our childhood was in Back to the Future. And the scene that kind of makes fun of the fact that uh, televisions are brand new and it was a big thing if, like, your house had gotten a hold of a television yet. He goes, now we can watch Jackie Gleason while we eat. Speaking of Jackie Gleason, Back to the Future, you and I did something really exciting last weekend. That's right. We saw Back to the Future, the musical, on Broadway in the city. You got me those tickets as a gift, and it was really, really fun. Um, I hadn't seen a Broadway show in a while, and this was a different kind of musical. One, because it's you know based on a movie, and I know that there have been many of those over the years. I think this is the first one I've ever seen. And, you know, there's a lot of tech stuff in there you know there's a there's a big screen that they use for special effects which was really cool it was a very different kind of experience for me but what did you think james did you like it i thought it was a lot of fun it's exactly what i would say a musical version 
of Back to the Future would be. And this is not Les Mis, where it's two and a half hours of song. It's a Back to the Future live reenactment, like a play with, with elaborate sets, with occasional musical numbers. I don't mean occasional, I mean there's like a dozen in each act. But it really does have a lot of just dialogue and, uh, you know, reenactments of scenes that don't have any music at all. And it's really, really... Uh, in a lot of ways, very well done for the fans. I'm not saying it's not for people that don't know the story, um, but for fans, you can tell every little nuance that they're changing of the plot, whether it's, you know, huge plot changes that they made, and some were obvious. Um, one big plot change is that Doc Brown is not killed by Libyan terrorists, as he's right. killed by in the uh, movie, but instead he's killed by accidentally uh, poisoning himself with radiation poisoning from the plutonium. And they kind of are stereotypical Arab terrorists right. in there. And also, you know, maybe want to have gunfire. And even though it's going to be shots and stuff, it works in Les Mis, but it didn't really affect the plot in any way. Well, I think the weird thing about it is that Doc Brown is a brilliant scientist who has invented time travel but didn't take enough precautions when dealing with plutonium. That's a little bit like, really? Come on. And also, Marty McFly is not wearing a radiation suit at all, right. and he's filming the whole thing, but he's fine. I guess that you had to touch it or something like that. Yeah, I mean, whatever. It's fine. Yeah, and they did a couple other things, like the car only works with uh, Doc Brown's voice activation. Yeah. Which, um, you know, a little nitpicky, like 1985. But then again, you would you make a flux capacitor in 1985? I guess if you could do that, you could do voice activation. It uh, took the place of, like, the engine not working at the end and those kind of little things that it, it worked fine. I mean, it was a change that at first I was like, oh, change, that's not the same. But I was like... Okay, whatever. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Um, I was kind of looking forward to what they were going to do with the skateboard scene, which ends in uh, Biff and his gang getting uh, hit by manure. Yeah. And they did change it to more of like, kind of like a high school food fight uh, kind of deal. And, uh, you know, Biff gets a plate of spaghetti thrown in his face. I guess it, it just it wouldn't necessarily work uh, the same way. So that was fine. Um, they took away a couple other scenes, like the plot point of George needing a lot of convincing to take out Lorraine and, you know, the spaceman from Pluto. Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. Right, right, exactly. Otherwise, it was very faithful to the plot. It almost, uh, in a lot of ways, almost identical dialogue. Yeah, and you said earlier that the musical isn't necessarily only for people who know the movie. I kind of think it really is. Like, in terms of the appeal, like, yes, if you never saw the movie, you might still enjoy the musical and think it's fun and entertaining, but it really is leaning on people who know the material, who know the story, who know the lines of dialogue, who will get all of the references. I think that's who they're really trying to bring into the theater. And, you know, maybe someone who is like our age, who has kids who haven't seen the movie, which is bad parenting, but whatever, like then they might bring their kids. So... The kids haven't seen it, but I think really that's what they're going for. People who know the story already. I agree. I, I think it's more for people that know the story. I think it was enjoyable for people that, that could at least follow the plot. Sure. Um, the actors, um, there were a few standouts for me. Um, were there a few standouts for you? 
Honestly, no. And I don't mean that in like a bad way, but like to me, they were all good, but I just felt like they were all doing impressions. I felt like Marty was doing a Michael J. Fox impression and Doc was doing a Christopher Lloyd impression, et cetera, et cetera. And they weren't bad, but it was just like it kind of took away a little something for me just because they weren't really doing their own interpretation of the character. They were just doing what the actors had done before and like, you know, really trying to affect the same voice and mannerisms and all of that. I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, Mayor Goldie Wilson, I thought that actor uh, was fantastic. I thought every time he was on stage, uh, he was great. Okay. And it's not like he had anything to really imitate. So That's I think you know he uh, actually could excel in that part. And I thought that the actor that they got to play Biff, I mean, where did they find this guy? This guy was enormous. This was not prosthetics. I don't think so. I thought he was also so fantastic because he wasn't just a big, you know, muscle-bound guy. He he sang really well. Yeah, I, I thought Marty and Doc were, were perfectly fine. I, I don't think those actors were necessarily as entitled to take as many chances as some of the minor characters could do. Um, in my opinion, the person that was making the most impression was George McFly. Yes. That guy was doing a fantastic Crispin Glover impression. Yeah. But it was a Crispin Glover impression. He, he was very funny. Um, the special effects. Um, you mentioned it. There is a screen and there's a, a car that turns on and, uh, you know, it uh, you know lights up with the blue lights and everything. And it goes back in time. I mean, I think that's the more impressive thing that the car does. Right, right. And you know, the whole theater uh, lights up and, it, you know, it, it basically turns around and the screen behind it does uh, like a green screen where it's moving it. It's very well done. I, I yeah. mean, obviously, it's a play, a musical. You're suspending some belief. If this was a movie, it would look terrible. But sure. it looks very good. And then the at the very end, there's the big musical number and the... And the is it reprise or reprise? I believe reprise. Okay, so, you know, because I never mispronounce uh, words right now. You do it literally seven times an episode. I don't even correct you that much. Half the time you do it and I just let it go. Right, so the reprise is basically all the actors coming out and they're singing back in time. Doc comes, Marty, you've got to come with me. Uh, we got to go to the future. And they go in the car and Marty, of course, says his famous line, which is what? Uh, not enough roads, you mean? Not enough roads to get to 88? Exactly. And Doc says, where we're going, we don't need roads. This did make me, as a Back to the Future fan, go, oh, that's cool. The uh, car does lift up into the into the air. The wheels turn to the side. And the car flies out up to, like, row 10. We were in row, like, 18 or so. And it spins around and then flies back. I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, there was good stuff in there. Would you recommend this musical to someone, Al? Um, yes, if they were a big Back to the Future fan. I think if you're more into, I guess, conventional musicals, you know, Les Mis or Miss Saigon or Wicked, things like that, I don't know if you would love it necessarily, maybe. But I think for like people like us who love Back to the Future, yeah, this is a good one. What about you? 
I agree with you uh, pretty much entirely what you said. If you're a Back to the Future fan and you also want a kind of a sure thing, it was a safe bet. This is pretty much by the numbers what you expect it to be. If you're a fan of Back to the Future, yeah, this was made for you. And the prices were, you know, Broadway prices. It was certainly reasonable. We had a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you again for the tickets. It was a good time. And thank you, Al, for the pizza beforehand. That actually wasn't a gift. You do owe me a couple bucks for that. Oh, okay. I'll Venmo you. Yes, please do. But let's talk about Smokey and the Bandit. So this movie was one that we picked because I feel like we've talked about it in other episodes. It's come up and I'd never seen it. Had you ever seen it before? No, I'd never seen it. And it's the kind of film that is, uh, you know, it's a major hit from the 70s. It's not on my list of like, how have I never seen it? But it just kind of always fascinates me that someone like Burt Reynolds was a major movie star that I knew of as a movie star, but never in my generation. Right. It's just amazing how someone's career can just be like completely just hit a wall like decade to decade. I don't mean in a good way or bad way. I always knew him like he's a superstar, but um, this was a movie at the peak of Burt Reynolds' uh, superstardom. Right, right. So just a little recap of the plot. It's about a trucker named Bo, but everyone knows him by his CB handle, Bandit. Bandit is hired to smuggle a truckload of Coors beer from Texarkana, Texas to Atlanta, Georgia. The run has to be done in 28 hours, and his reward will be $80,000 if he's successful. Bandit enlists his brother-in-law, Snowman, to drive the truck, while Bandit acts as a blocker, meant to keep police away from the truck. On their journey, Bandit meets and picks up a runaway bride named Carrie. But Carrie was supposed to marry the son of Sheriff Buford T. Justice, so now he's pursuing Bandit across state lines, hell-bent on capturing the outlaw. Will Bandit be able to outrun Smokey in time? So, I don't need to ask you if this is a big hit, because I know this was a huge, huge hit when it was released in 1977. Yeah, um, the budget for this film was, depending on the sources, anywhere between 4 and $5 million. And Burt Reynolds, was uh, he earned a million dollars for his salary alone. So, wow. There's not much of a budget. A lot of it is kind of like an extended Dukes of Hazard episode. And apparently a lot of the Dukes of Hazard people have small little cameos in the film. They're not even cameos because Dukes of Hazard came after this movie and everything that happens in this movie is basically what you would find in an episode of Dukes of Hazard. This movie was super popular and someone at a was it CBS? I forget. But whatever network it was was like, let's green light a TV show that's basically like Smokey and the Bandit, and that was Dukes of Hazard. You know, it was very reminiscent of it. I, I thought it was, uh, you know, I didn't realize that Dukes of Hazard was second because even the kind of like country, uh, that, that music and uh, theme song that goes throughout this uh, uh, movie, it, it really does uh, sound kind of Dukes of Hazard-like. Oh, yeah. And uh, you're right. It was an enormous hit. Off of its four to five million dollar budget, it made a hundred and twenty six million dollars domestically, three hundred million dollars worldwide. 
And, you know, I could understand this film being a worldwide hit only in the fact that, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds was a huge uh, worldwide movie star. But this is the kind of film that, you know, sort of like in the Fast and the Furious kind of way, there is dialogue, but it's really more about what you're seeing visually. And if you want to see car chases and wrecks and, uh, you know, beautiful women and, uh, you know, all this stuff and, you know, a sheriff that looks exactly like an American sheriff. Like, you're going to see that in this film. Also, the sheriff's name is Buford T. Justice, which I thought was, like, really, really lazy writing to name him Sheriff Justice. But then apparently it's based on a real guy whose name was actually Justice and he was a sheriff, which is like, okay, you know, every now and again there's a dentist named Dr. Teeth or something. And it's like, okay, it happens, you know, but I kind of thought that was a little bit like... Really? You couldn't think of anything better than that? That's funny. And there were several Smokey and the Bandits. And there was Smokey and the Bandit 2 in 1980. And then Smokey and the Bandit 3 in 1983. Each progressively making few, uh, less money. Uh, the second film earned $66 million, And the third film only earned $7 million. Right, right, right. I very quickly looked at the Wikipedia page for Smokey and the Bandit 2. And just like... The initial first couple paragraphs, I was like, really? Apparently, Bandit and uh, Carrie, also known as Frog, the Sally Field character, they have broken up. And then Frog is about to marry the sheriff's son again, but then like is a runaway bride again. It's like, oh, really? Not even that she was like a runaway bride again, but she was going to marry the same guy for a second time. I mean, come on. But I guess that gets that character back, you know, to have uh, Sheriff Justice. But it's also funny that this was a trilogy that came out in 77, 80 and 83. And Smokey and the Bandit was the number two movie of 1977 behind Star Wars. And then the sequel came out three years later, like Empire Strikes Back. And the the last in the trilogy came out in 83, like Return of the Jedi. I don't know. It's just kind of funny that there was this other trilogy that came out like at the same time, you know, paced the same way. But I had never seen any of these movies as opposed to Star Wars that I'd seen, you know, a gazillion times. That's funny that the trilogy uh, followed it, and it was not nearly as successful starting out as, you know, such a hugely successful film. And that's interesting because it seems like you just have to make an interesting car film to make the next one, you know, a, a lovable heist or something like that. And to really blow it with a well-established IP, that's just a shame. From what I saw, the second one, I think, did okay enough. I mean, at least okay enough to greenlight a third. But by the time the third one came around, Sally Field wasn't interested. Burt Reynolds wasn't interested. It's all about justice. And, you know, Sheriff Justice, I think, works in this movie as a supporting character. Can he lead a movie? No. I mean, I think for the movie to work, you would need Burt Reynolds. And if he's not going to show up, I, I mean, it's not surprising to me that it bombed. Right. And Burt Reynolds, we mentioned it earlier, we haven't seen him in much. We saw him in uh, Boogie Nights. Yeah. But I, I got to say, I mean, this guy is, he's one of these guys who's just a movie star. It's really funny that you say that. I did not find him to be that, like, movie star charming kind of guy. Last week, we were talking about Paul Newman in Slapshot, and he's a little older, but 
just watching that movie, I was like, okay, I get it. I get why people love Paul Newman. I understand his appeal. I really do not understand Burt Reynolds' appeal. And I think part of it is unfortunately not Burt Reynolds' fault. Can I guess what it is? Yeah, I bet you're going to guess right. Is it Norm MacDonald's impression of 1970s Burt Reynolds? Yes, a thousand percent. He was so goddamn funny on those Celebrity Jeopardy skits. And part of the way that Norm MacDonald played Burt Reynolds was constantly chewing gum. And I don't know why I thought that was funny. I guess it just was like a funny thing about the impression and I liked it and it made me laugh and I love Norm MacDonald. But in this movie, Burt Reynolds is chewing gum a lot and part of it is my misophonia and I hate the sound of people chewing gum. But even beyond that, that's just weird. Like, no, you shouldn't be chewing gum while delivering dialogue in a movie. Spit out your fucking gum, dude. It feels like unprofessional to me. I don't really get it from a character point of view. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I, I have really no comment on the gum chewing part. I do see what you mean. I do think he really has this comfort uh, in front of the camera, but I didn't say he's charming. Um, no, you didn't. I, I, I agree with you. And perhaps I'm also poisoned a little bit by <laughs> Norm's impression of him. I, I still do think I'm seeing an old movie star. Like sometimes, you know, you just watch some of these old, like, oh, that's who Cary Grant is. Like I wasn't necessarily sure who, who that is. And uh, okay, that guy knows what he's doing. Similarly, uh, we have a young Sally Field. Uh, I thought she's great in this film because I think her role is to be kind of damsel in distress, a little funny, a little charming, and to have some chemistry with Burt Reynolds, which I do think they do have. Uh, I think I agree. they have chemistry. I agree. And they were dating in real life. I'm not totally sure if they started dating with this movie or before or after. I, I don't really know, but I know they were a couple around this time. Yeah, and they were one of those couples that appeared in a lot of movies together, apparently. That's never a good sign, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, if you can only have great on-screen chemistry with your real-life boyfriend or girlfriend, that's probably not a great sign of your overall acting ability. Probably. Yeah, and uh, I agree exactly what you were saying about Smoking the Bandit 3 uh, when you said that uh, Sheriff Justice is a character that is best served in small doses. I thought he was funny. Uh, I mean, I thought it was kind of charming. Not as funny as I think audiences thought. I I was watching this and I was like, oh, I think audiences were laughing hysterically in the theater for this scene. I thought it was fine. I mean, I I wasn't the biggest Dukes of Hazard fan, but I'd seen enough episodes to know what Boss Hog is like, and this guy just felt like that character. He speaks with the Southern accent, he's mean to everyone, he wants to get that guy, and he'll do anything he can to do it. That That's pretty much it. You know, like, that, that that's basically the beginning, middle, and end of his character. Yeah. You know, then we get to the plot of the film, which is basically that these guys uh, are hired, uh, Smokey and his uh, buddy uh, uh, Snowman. Snowman? Snowman. Snowman. Yeah, it's not like (laughs) it's his last name. Uh, Right. Isn't that that a Seinfeld joke? Like Spider-Man, he's not Spider-Man? Right, right. Um, thank you for quoting a Seinfeld joke, Al. That, that, that's funny. Was that from Seinfeld's stand-up or the show? I don't 
think it was from the show. He definitely uh, tells people that they're pronouncing their last names wrong, but I don't think it was that one. Maybe it was. I could be wrong. I, I'm not sure. I have watched a lot of his uh, stand-up. But the, the plot is basically you have to bring 400 cases of Coors beer across the country, basically. You have 28 hours or something to do it. From Texas to Atlanta. Right, right. And the real big problem is that if you cross the Mississippi with beer, it's bootlegging. And I don't know if this is true today. Maybe it's one of these weird arcane laws. Like there's a couple, you know, there's a couple states in the South where whenever you go to a bar, they have to like pour out bottles and like those little miniature airline uh, mini bar bottles. Oh, really? Yeah, because they can't quite pour it in, in real bottles. And like, you know, there's certain dry counties still in the, in the South where you can't have any alcohol. I, I wonder if maybe it's still true. It's not. I I did a little bit of research on this. So basically, in the 70s, Coors beer wasn't pasteurized and had no preservatives. So it was only available in places near Colorado, basically places where it could get to in a day or so. So you couldn't really get it like on the East Coast. And if you liked that beer, you would have to kind of smuggle it. It was never bootlegging. Bootlegging is a term from prohibition. I think that term is used a little loosely here. It's like maybe air quotes bootlegging, like you're sneaking the beer across state lines. I don't really even think it was illegal. It just wasn't recommended because the beer wouldn't last and it wouldn't stay. I'll I'll make the joke. How can you tell when Coors Light has gone bad? Because all Coors tastes terrible. I mean, I think. Uh, But so it's based on reality, but... The movie does take some liberties with it where if you transport this beer, it is a crime. And I don't really think that was true. I think it was just more like you shouldn't do that. And Coors wasn't going to sell the beer in Atlanta because it, it wouldn't stay. So this guy, Big Enos, wants to have 400 cases of beer for his party. So he hires Bandit to bring it. And it's like, okay, first off, Just very low stakes for the entire plot of this movie. You know, this one rich guy wants to have a lot of beer for his party. So that's what's at stake. Or I guess for Bandit, it's the $80,000 reward money. But he doesn't seem like he desperately needs it because Bandit is a famous truck driver. That's where Big Enos recruits him at some like trucker event. And Bandit is this world famous truck driver. All the truckers know him. But then in the movie, he doesn't ever drive a truck. He hires his brother-in-law, Snowman, to to drive the truck. So I thought, like, a lot of that was just weird and confusing and surprising and, like, also kind of like a weird Coors commercial. Like, it's based on fact, but I was like, why is this such an obsession to have this guy bring 400 cases of Coors beer? Also, if, like, this is the guy's huge, huge party, right, that the big Enos and little Enos are throwing for their race car driver, I think it is, if he doesn't make it with the beer, then is it just a terrible party? Everyone has to leave? There's no beer? Yeah, oddly, I guess the entire thing is dependent on it, that he hires him, like, a few days before the event. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a really big roll of the dice for your party. Like, if you're having a party, you're having people over to your apartment, would you ask your least dependable friend to, like, bring the beer? Probably not. Exactly. So they accept this offer, 
The hard part is once you have the beer, you know, any uh, law enforcement officer at any point could just pull you over and say, we want to inspect and see your manifest. And, uh, you know, it has to match the cargo. That's, you know, standard trucking things. So the idea is that bandit, uh, Burt Reynolds, he is going to be what's known as the blocker. So he has this real sweet Trans Am. Say, for example, it's 55 miles per hour area. The truck is going to drive at a speed limit, but the Trans Am is going to be going 70. So that if the cop is trying to you know, do his job, he's going to pull over the uh, Trans Am. So that's going to distract him so that the truck can swing by. Yeah, I have so many questions about this. This seems so, so weird to me. First off, if you do the math on like the 28 hours they have and the number of miles, they just have to drive 65 miles an hour from Texas to Atlanta. That's not insane. I don't know what the speed limit was there in the South in the 70s. Maybe it was 55, but 65 isn't crazy. It seems doable. And I understand the concept of the blocker. It happens one time in the movie at the end when the truck gets pulled over and the trooper says, hey, I want to see your manifest and everything. And uh oh, this is trouble. And then Bandit swoops in. He drives by. I think Frog gives him the middle finger. And then the trooper goes and chases him instead. Perfect. I understand that. But for the entire rest of the trip, they are very, very far apart. Snowman is miles away from Bandit and like they're talking to each other over the CB radio. But like if Snowman had gotten pulled over at at any given moment, Bandit's busy. Bandit is not able to come and rescue him. It seems like if he's going to be the blocker, they should be together, like together, together within a mile of each other, maybe a couple of miles. Also, just have the truck drive slow and hopefully you won't get into any trouble. You won't get pulled over. But Bandit's like breaking every law and doing insane stunts everywhere. He's attracting attention. Isn't that the opposite of what you want to do? I still think the problem is that trucks get randomly pulled over. And I think that's the job of like, you know, the highway patrol. And what they're trying to do is when a cop comes and they might want to pull over a truck, this guy is going to just, you know, rev it up to twice the speed limit. The problem is that uh, Bandit, he does all this other crazy stuff. You'd think like, all right, you drive 75, I'll drive 55. You know, you'll get a ticket. Who cares? They'll say, it's the 70s. The internet hasn't been invented. And they'll high five that there's no internet. And uh, they'll basically be like, the states can't track this. You just rip those up. Or you'd pay the couple hundred bucks. You're getting $80,000. But just sit there for 15 minutes while the guy has to like, you know, check your license and check, uh, you know, all this other stuff. And 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 the band that he's probably going to make small talk because he's such a smooth talker. Sorry, I just got a, such a sweet ride, officer. What kind of car are you driving? Talk as long as you need to to distract him from the truck going and then catch up with him later. I, I didn't quite get why he, like, does all this Dukes of Hazard stuff. And then finally he hides behind another house, like Grand Theft Auto style, until the cops pass him. And then... Uh, You're right. It doesn't quite make sense because if he's ever caught in a high stakes chase, you're going to jail. You're not getting a ticket like because all those cops like crashed like into buildings like you are going to jail. Exactly. And there are a lot of like accidents where you got to figure cops are going to get hurt, maybe killed. Pedestrians are going to get hurt, probably killed. At one point they drive through like a football game, like a high school football game. 
you know, apparently in real life, uh, the car actually almost hit some of those extras because the the ground was a little too wet, which is scary. Thankfully, no one was really hurt in real life. But like, even just in the scene, I'm like, this is insane. Why is he driving through a high school football game? Someone could get really hurt. You're, you're delivering beer for like, you know, a nice reward. But like, this is just bad shit. You should be keeping a low profile. But then again, it's Bandit saying like, well, this is what I do. This is what I do best. And I love what I do because he's cocky Burt Reynolds. But also this isn't what he does. He's a truck driver. You know, like that, that is what they established for him at the beginning of the movie, which is weird if they never have him drive a truck. I mean, I think the whole point is that he's a trucker, so he knows how to smuggle something. And he knows you need uh, a blocker. Maybe it would have been better, like, I need, uh, like, a driver, like in Baby Driver. And one of these kind of films, like, we need a great getaway driver who's skilled at cars. Sure. That would make more sense. Like, you recruit a bandit at the racetrack or something. Right. Um, so so I get that, that that is an interesting, you know, plot point. Why make him the world's greatest trucker? But still, for me, it worked because he has the knowledge to do it but um that baseball field scene i was just thinking that it was very test of time it's like oh wow look he really is almost like killed a whole band and like mowed him down and like you know today like people are doing this to like you know protest and stuff today you just wouldn't have a bunch of high school kids almost get mowed down by a car but i do get why they did it back then it's you know quote unquote funny because yeah nobody gets hurt it's just one of these kind of like wacky roadrunner uh kind of situations but i was just like wow that does not you know that doesn't stand up no no and speaking of things that don't stand up the music in this movie. It's like one song that is played over and over and over again. It's called Eastbound and Down. Here's a little clip of it. Eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just watch your bandit run. The song is performed by Jerry Reed, who is the actor who plays uh, the snowman. And the song is fine, except it's really repetitive. They say the same line over and over again each time the song is played. And this song is played multiple times throughout the movie. And not only that, but the song isn't about like trucking or driving or outrunning the law. It's about Bandit and Bandit bringing beer from Texas to Atlanta. The lyrics of the song are very specific about what you are seeing on screen. That, as a test of time thing, like, I don't think that lasted until the 80s. Like, we've seen a million 80s movies. That's not, like, a a trend. Maybe it's more of a regional thing? Like, southern movies do that? I don't know. But, like, I found it to be really, really distracting. It's a hat on a hat. Actually, I thought it was a really good country song. Uh, The problem is, is that they play it 17 times in the film. I remember thinking that when we reviewed That Thing You Do, like, they play this one song over and over. But the point of the movie is their one-hit wonder. So you play the one song over and over. But they, they play it over and over in this film. And they play the line about, like, the bandit got away. And, like, or they something, something, the bandit. And it does work in, in a line or two, but it's, 
it's a few too many times. And then right when the film ends, it goes eastbound and down. The one line is, we've got a long way to go and not much time to get there. So Bandit's gonna something, something, something. And it's like, oh my God, right, we know. That's the, that's the plot of the movie. And then there's like one part early on when Snowman is like, hey, why are we doing this? And Bandit says, because they said it couldn't be done. Okay, fine. That's his character. He's going to take any challenge. That's who he is. Then the song that plays right after that is, they say it can't be done, so we're going to do it. It's like, right, I know. You just said that in dialogue. You don't need to say that in the song right after. The scene when Bandit and Frog, like, you know, they're flirting and they're going to get together. The music, it's not like, hey, we found each other, we're two people, we're lost, and we have a connection. No, no, it's like, Bandit, he always gets the girl, the ladies love Bandit smile. Like, it's weird. It is really weird to be hearing the song be so specific about what you are seeing on screen. That's what I mean by hat on a hat. I thought that was really, really strange. Well, uh, that's your opinion on that, and you're very impassioned about it. Well, thank you. Um, I just want to finally talk about the end of the film, which is basically how the plot wraps up in the last minute, where the truck bre- breaks into the country fair, they give it to the uh, the, the boss guy, they're kind of arguing about whether or not that he has to pay Bandit or not. And then he goes, double or nothing. Get me some clam chowder from Boston and be back in like 18 hours or something. Basically, I'm like, wait, they could get $160,000 by driving from Atlanta to Boston in 18 hours? They should be able to do that, like by going not too fast over the speed limit, right? I don't know about that. Maybe not. We drove from Long Island to Savannah once. I think it took us about 18 hours one way. That was stopping for breaks and stuff. But um, I don't know. That's a pretty long drive. And traffic? Uh, I don't know. Well, according to Google Maps right now, uh, we're recording this in the evening. So it's basically, if you drove now, there'd be mostly no traffic. They say it would take about 17 hours. And Google Maps always does it, uh, you know, speed limit. So for these guys, if they were to drive, you know, if they're driving 100 miles per hour, they, they probably could do it. Yeah, but they don't need the truck to do that. And they can just take the, the Trans Am. I do just want to say that I do love Trans Ams and Firebirds. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, but my very first car that I ever bought was a Pontiac Firebird. And it was like the love of my life, other than Courtney and the kids, obviously. I saw a great uh, piece of trivia on IMDb that said uh, that uh, Burt Reynolds apparently was told that if the movie was a hit, an executive at Pontiac said they'd give him a free Trans Am. Yeah, this movie became a smash hit. And Pontiac Trans Am sales, they jumped from 68,077 to 93,078, and then finally 117,000. It doubled almost in two years, probably, you know, largely because of films like this. And, you know, Dukes of Hazard kind of, you know, it's a cool looking car in the 70s and 80s. And, well, Dukes uh, of Hazard wasn't a. Uh... That was a, a Dodge Charger. I know, but these kind of cars, I'm sure there were other cars in Dukes of Hazard that they're driving around and chasing. Yeah. You know, Trans Am was, back in the day, you know, that was a car to have. And uh, Al, you had a Trans Am. I didn't have a Trans Am. I had a Firebird. Trans Am was like the top of the line model of the Firebird. 
Okay, because uh, Pontiac was GM's experimental uh, line. So that's what Pontiac was for. It was kind of where they experimented with a couple ideas of theirs. Yes, but the Firebird was a clone of the Camaro. And the Chevy Camaro always outsold the Pontiac Firebird. So why would they sell it under two different names? Oh, I really don't know. But they were like the same model car. I think there were maybe some slight differences, but they were basically the same. Um, I had my Firebird in 1997. It was a 1984 Pontiac Firebird. It was old. It was beat up. And you know what I named it? Gator fan? No, that doesn't make any sense at all. I named it the Millennium Falcon. I called it the Falcon for short because it was the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. Was it really that fast? I mean, it was pretty fast. It certainly wasn't the fastest thing in the galaxy, but it was pretty fast. So of all the hunks of junks, though, you really think you would win in the entire galaxy of cars that are classified as junks? That was the fastest? No, no, it wasn't literal. It was just because I was a Star Wars nerd and I had a little Millennium Falcon on the dashboard. Oh, okay. So it was based on a lie. Uh, No, it was an exaggeration. But James, let me ask you, do you think that Smokey and the Bandit stands the test of time? You know, we talk about these kind of things all the time, like what does standing the test of time mean? And I always talk about the box office uh, for two reasons. One, for a strange reason, I'm fascinated by movie box office uh, numbers. But two, I think box office is a really good uh, label of how well the film was when it was released, like how well the audience accepted it. Sometimes there's films that have gotten better, like Shawshank Redemption, huge flop. Today, known as one of the greatest films ever made. You know, uh, so box office doesn't necessarily reflect it. Other times, you know, Jurassic Park, huge blockbuster, still beloved, you know, it, it reflects that. But, you know, when you look at something like Smoking the Bandit, it's the number two film. And if it wasn't for George Lucas's random film that came out in 1977, Smoking the Bandit would be the number one film of that year. And in that department, no, this is not a greatest film. This is not going to this is not going to entice audiences in uh, 2023 the way it enticed audience in 1977. Um this is a film that I think was inevitable. I think you have the biggest star at the time, Burt Reynolds. You know, you you have a, a car racing film, the inevitable cross country film that it, it's it's a great genre. There's a, a lot of stuff you can write. It can be funny. I think this film has a lot of charm in it. I don't think there's anything really wrong with this film. I, I was kind of bracing for a really bad film. I didn't think it was that bad. Um, I, I thought it was fine. I was kind of bored by it. Um, I thought it went out a little bit too long. I think the comedy, I could, like I said earlier, I could feel this was a joke that nailed the theater in 1977, but it just didn't hit me. Um, Jackie Gleason, he was charming enough, but he wasn't hysterical, uh, which I think it was the point of it. Um, for me, I never saw it in my 40-something years. I don't think I need to see it in hopefully, you know, 40-something or more years left. It was a time and a place for it. It's not one of those, what the hell were they thinking back then? No, this charmed the people in the 70s. It dawned the uh, the Dukes of Hazard, and probably 
20 clones of this movie that we've never heard of. For me, it just didn't grab my attention. I have no desire to continue this adventure and Smoking the Bandit 2 and certainly less so 3. So for me, no, this film does not stand the test of time. Not terrible. If you watched this film as a kid and you saw it today and you're like, it's still great, I'd say probably it's a little more nostalgia. But what do you think, Al? Does Smoking the Bandit stand the test of time? I mean, I certainly agree with you on the boring front. I mean, this movie is like an hour 36, I believe. Not very long, but it felt really, really tedious because the same thing kept happening. Oh, no. How's Bandit going to get out of this one? With some clever driving, that's how. Like, that's just what happens over and over and over and over again. And I can believe that people like watching that in movies. I mean, the Fast and the Furious movies are still being made. I've never seen one, and I don't think I ever will at this point. I think I've kind of made it a point to not see it. No. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you will. At some point, you'll do it either for my birthday or we'll have a bet and maybe you'll lose. No, I don't think so. But like those movies are about driving to get out of situations. From what I know of that franchise, from the trailers I've seen and stuff, there are like stakes though, right? Like they have to do crazy driving and, you know, drive over a train that's also a plane that's like being carried on a helicarrier or something in order to save the world, save some lives, you know, do something important, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, basic stuff like um, world-killing lasers from satellites are going to you know, destroy the world if they can't drive properly. Or, you know, $100 million in a safe in, in Rio de Janeiro. You know, the standard stuff that driving will help. Okay, fine. That's stupid. But at least that makes a little bit more sense than it's all just about bringing beer to some guy's party. Like, why do I care? I don't care. I don't care if he makes it. I don't care if this guy gets the beer. Also, I I think I kind of mentioned this before, but like the $80,000 prize money, does Bandit really need that? Does he have a sick grandma or his house is going to get repossessed or something? There needs to be something for me to be rooting for him, to really want him to do it. And I think really audiences only cared because... They just wanted to see the car do some crazy things. And that's fine, but I just felt like the plot of this movie was paper thin. Also, Bandit picks up this woman, this runaway bride, and then he calls her Frog. Frog was supposed to marry Justice's son, Junior, the guy who is like in the car with uh with Justice the whole movie. He's kind of like his comic foil or whatever. At no point does Bandit find out that's why Justice is tailing him. Once or twice he says, I don't understand. Why is this guy from Texas following me? We're in a different state now. He has no jurisdiction. What's up with this guy? And Frog is like, yeah, I don't know. Like, no, you do know. You were going to marry a guy named something Junior Justice, Justice Junior or whatever. You know why he's following you. Tell him. That could have been a plot point. He leaves her at the diner and then she like steals the car. That should have been the thing of like, hey, I have to leave you here. This guy's after me because of you. Sorry, you're sweet and all, but we have to say goodbye. This is a you problem. I got to get this beer. I got to get this $80,000. But then he goes back for her because he likes her. I mean, this is really basic plot stuff that they just don't even bother at all. And Justice doesn't know about the beer either. He's not like trying to get the, the beer because of bootlegging or whatever. 
I just found it all really, really weird. Also, from a test of time perspective, there is a Confederate flag on the license plate. You know, if they made the movie today, they wouldn't have that. And there's some unpolitically correct stuff in there, too. Justice is very clearly racist when he encounters a black sheriff that he does not approve of. He threatens to punch uh, his son's mother in the mouth because his son is dumb. I guess that that was an innocent joke in the 70s. Wasn't Jackie Gleason always threatening to beat his wife in The Honeymooners? That was the whole thing, right? To the moon, Alice. Exactly, exactly. Um, Something else that I don't really think stands the test of time, Smokey means cop. I don't know that people know that. Did you know that that was what Smokey was referring to? No, and the first time I heard uh, Showman... Snowman. uh, Sorry, sorry, uh, Snowman. I thought he might have said... Smoker. I, I, I thought he might have said it like that because he kind of does have a drawl and like, you know, he's got an accent. But the second or third time, I'm like, no, I can't trick myself into thinking he's saying smoky. What the hell is smoky? I didn't know. Yeah, that is what it means. And I don't think that really stands the test of time. You know, I could also say that there are parts of this movie that do stand the test of time. There are like commercials that they've made that are like parodies of Smokey and the Bandit. They do like recreations where fans of this movie will drive the route that they do in this movie from Texarkana to Atlanta. People love it. I don't understand why. This is a movie that is very, very much not for me. I'm going to say, no, it does not stand the test of time. You know, we didn't talk about the one character that I really did love in this movie, though. Fred. Fred is the best character in the whole damn movie. Who's Fred? The Basset Hound. Snowman's dog that's in the truck with him. Oh, my God. He's such a good boy. And then they say, get Fred a hamburger. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what a good boy. And when Bandit is running out of the diner and he sees uh, Sally Field driving away, he grabs a paper bag. And that's the hamburger. Yes, yes. No, they do make it a point to give uh, Fred his hamburger. But then also, like... Speaking of plot things that don't go anywhere, at one point, like, Fred runs away. And I was like, oh, this is going to be, like, they're going to be behind schedule because Snowman had to chase Fred. But no, he just picks him up right away and puts him back in the truck and doesn't really matter. Uh, But I agree. He was a very, very good boy and a very adorable doggy. So that's a no on Smokey and the Bandit. Next week, we're going to leave the 70s. We're going to go to the early 2000s. Another movie that I believe has some driving in it, The Italian Job. The 2003 version, not the one from the 60s. Right. The 1969 version is uh, Michael Caine, and this one is Mark Wahlberg. Basically the same guy. (laughs) But until then, we are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And Threads, by the way. I signed us up for a Threads account. I don't know why, but, you know, it seemed like everyone was doing that. Oh, before someone else squats on the Test of Time uh, now we got it. That's right. That's right. It was very easy to sign up. Uh, so, yeah, if you have left Twitter and you're on threads, you can find us at Test of Time Pod on threads. Check us out. Say hi. Let us know what you think about Smokey and the Bandit. If you would gladly go on this run for 400 cases, of course. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.